Pravelovolu is the founder of Memir, a software platform that helps instructors and students by moving the computer science classroom online. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you. What is Memir? Um, so Memir is, is uh, our one-liner for it at least, is it's a platform that helps schools scale up their computer science program. Um, so there's a, there's a huge problem right now um, for demand for engineers. And you can especially see that in the Silicon Valley where all the companies are kind of competing each, uh, with each other for talent. Um, and, and the source of this problem is really um, colleges. Um, there's not enough uh, available seats in CS programs across the nation. And it's really hard to scale up CS programs too. Um, the hardest part of it is finding CS instructors. Um, people with CS degrees, a majority of them want to go take one of those highly competitive jobs uh, rather than take a CS um, teaching position. So our platform kind of automates all the um, tedious and repetitious work in a CS course, like uh, grading is the biggest thing we do. Um, and it really allows uh, instructors to teach more classes and also frees them up um, so they can focus on individual students as well. Why did you start Mimir? Um, so it, it was more personal. So me and my co-founders, we were attending um, Purdue University our freshman year. Um, and we had this idea in the back of our mind uh, since high school where we took a few CS courses. Um, we'd always turn in a programming assignment and it would take about a week or two at the high school level and then like three to four weeks at the collegiate level to have it graded and returned to us. Um, and that was pretty annoying, especially since uh, CS is all about automation and like, you know, uh, how fast it is. So we originally started out just to create kind of like a mini auto grader system. Um, to quickly evaluate projects. And uh, we presented to our professors at Purdue. They liked it. And then slowly other schools, um, we showed it to other schools, and they really liked it. Um, and after seeing that there was actually a demand for a tool like this for CS courses, we decided to kind of double down on it and build out um, a full platform. So we also do plagiarism detection, analytics. Um, a big part about CS is that I think the statistic was 60% of people that start the major don't end up finishing. Um, so we have uh, come some predictive analytics in place that um, help instructors and TAs identify those struggling students. And then we also present content to the uh, struggling students so they can really do well in that course. We'll get into the guts of the engineering behind your automated grading platform. But I want to talk more about the um, just the business use case first. So as you looked at this domain of computer science curriculum management and automation more, what problems did you discover? What are the pain points in computer science curriculum management? Um, it, it really revolves around grading and plagiarism. Um, so their instructors are able to write little scripts that you know kind of help them grade more quickly. But um, if they were to do that, they completely miss the plagiarism thing since it, it's Detecting plagiarism code can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, um, besides just diffing two projects. Um, so the, by combining the two into one system where all students, or not even instructors have to submit the project, students submit their own projects, it just kind of, the uh, instructors like focus on what they really care about. So beforehand, um, the cycle would be students, you know, Dropbox their assignments or email their assignments in, and then instructors have to pull them down take care of them, grade them, um, enter grades into a grade book, and then um, they usually provide no feedback because just doing that took so long. With our system, um, 
basically instructors spend a day or two at the start of the semester setting up their projects and assignments. Um, and then they literally don't have to worry about grading for the entire semester. Students log in themselves and um, submit their work. It goes through our automation systems. And then at the end of the semester, instructors can just export the grade book from our system into Blackboard or whatever it is. So we really took a big chunk of um, was eating up their time uh, teaching, of course. Could you explain how Mimir looks from the standpoint of students and from the standpoint of teachers? Like, how does the UI look on either side? Sure. Um, so the UI is pretty similar. Uh, the biggest difference is instructors have more administrative features, of course. So as a, like, the starting workflow for an instructor would be you create your account, you create a course, you start creating projects and assignments in it, um, and then if it's a programming project, you build sort of tests uh, for it. So it uses kind of a unit testing model uh, for the automation. And once you do that, you're kind of done. And then students, they just create their accounts, they join their course, um, and then they just upload their code as they finish assignments. So I'd like to get into some of the engineering. When you decided to start Mimir, what was the first part that you engineered? What was the first thing? Uh, the first thing we engineered was the grading system. Because um, we knew that would be the most difficult part. We've built websites and things like that before, um, but never really tackled this challenge. So we kind of built like a command line automatic grading system. And once we got that off the ground, we started moving towards you know building an actual website around it. What was the software stack that you used? Initially, it was a LAMP stack. Um, so it, it, PHP, Cake PHP was our um, framework right back then. That's what we knew best. Um, then we shifted since that, so our current stack is Ruby on Rails. You hear a lot of people complaining about PHP. What are the pain points of using PHP? To tell you the truth, we didn't really have too many pain points. We, I personally thought it was um, easier to develop with than Ruby on Rails since you know it's an easy language to pick up. Um, it's not, it doesn't have too much of a learning curve. Um, where I guess some of the problems were, were with efficiency um, and trying to have like a secure compilation environment and like run all these a student's project um, even though it might have bad code like uh, that could you know crash the system or something like huh. that um, within like a PHP environment so like back then um, right now we have a distributed thing that I can talk about in a second but back then it was just a single server and code got uploaded and there was like a min uh, a portion of the server that it ran code in uh, one by one kind of in like a, a pseudo queue system yeah so we really struggled like trying to get that work with php and things like that and uh something i really enjoy in websites is like real time not having to refresh the page um and there wasn't like a super simple way of doing it with php i'm sure we could have used web sockets or something like that but um with ruby on rails there's just like so many gems out there that makes it easy so um, can you describe the, the process of, uh, you know, how you moved from PHP to Rails or what uh, incited that? Sure. Um, so when we built version one, we knew it wasn't going to last us forever. Um, it was basically a prototype. Uh, we went up to 500 students active on it. And we ditched this version um, basically this semester. This is the first semester that students are running on version two. We built version two over the summer. Um, and so the main decision to move from that is like we we um, we hadn't committed full time while we were running kind of version one, 
uh, we were doing like freelance work on the side, and a lot of that work was in Ruby on Rails, and we kind of really started to love the language. So that was it was an easy decision to pick the next language um, since we all knew this so well, and um, it's pretty it's highly scalable from and met our needs. Were you able to reuse any of your code? Um, I think we use reused some of our analytics engines, but okay. besides that, we kind of rewrote everything. Okay, interesting. So I I'd love to get more into the guts of the um, of the grading system. Can can you describe? I guess the spec for your grading system, like at the beginning, like even when it was just written in PHP, I guess what was the spec for the minimum viable product from an engineering standpoint? Sure. So initially there's one type of test case we're trying to tackle and that was just input output. Um, and then a year in version one, we eventually expand into kind of a unit test case as well. Um, so just unit tests that you'd be familiar with, um, with, you know, developing software and things like that. So basically we just needed to, uh, have instructors write these unit tests without having to write any code. Um, so that was the hardest challenge. Like, how do we have like a really configurable, almost option pane where they can just specify like um, what they want to test without them having to actually write any code? Um, can you and, describe like an example or two of, of like what types of projects people were your, the instructors were were using this platform for? Sure. Um, the class that I see most often on the platform right now is data structures. So having students implement like double linked lists and stacks and things like that. Um, so students just submit their projects and instructors have a bunch of unit tests uh, that just kind of evaluate the project. So for the stack project, um, they just like add a bunch of things to the stack, remove a bunch of things to the stack and make sure it works. Mm. Um, test the two string method and things like that. Right. So what does the instructor have to define for a unit test case? Is it just like, this is the command line input and it should work for your program? Um, for version one, it was really messy. Um, I don't actually remember the complete details on that. But for version two, the way they do it is, um, it's kind of like writing the body of a function. So let's say they're testing the stack in Java. We automatically import that stack in for them. Um, and like in the text box, the ace editor that they get, they basically write, like, uh, they create a new stack, they do, like, stack dot, you know, add things to the stack, remove things to the stack, and at the end, um, you have to return true or false. So if you return true, that means, like, everything worked exactly the way you wanted it to. If you return false, that means something went wrong. And um, you can, like, catch exceptions or anything you want um, within that space. So when you improved beyond the minimum viable product, you said originally you had this kind of uh, one-box solution. Um, how did you develop into it? Uh, I don't know. Was it? Did you turn into like, sort of like a distributed architecture or something? Yeah. Um, so it's extreme. Uh, we tried to distribute everything that didn't need to be in Ruby on Rails to somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, partially for security um, and partially just so that um, you know the main service not slowed down every time some, somebody submits a project. So our compilation and um, grading happens on um, just a distributed task queue um, with nodes in it, so we can spin up nodes and decrease nodes based on how many students are actively submitting. Um, and then our analytics engine separate; it just continuously like grinds on data and um, tries to and refreshes reports for instructors. Um, what well, what hosting provider do you use? Do you use AWS? 
Okay. Was there any deliberation there, or did you just go with AWS because nobody ever got fired for using AWS? <laughs> um, well, for us, it was an easy choice because uh, through Y Combinator, we get some credit on AWS's platform. Ah, yes. Um, and they were offering. We also get credits for Azure now, right? Yep. Um, but AWS was a lot more than Azure, so okay. we just jumped on AWS. Interesting. Yeah, and then uh, the last thing is the plagiarism system. Um, so that also just runs. It just grinds on all the student submissions, um, like continuously, and every time it flags something, it just sends a report to instructors. So, uh, how do you check for plagiarism? Uh, there's a bunch of different data points that we do, and that's uh, something we don't talk about too much in detail. But at a high level, um, you can of course just look at similarity in code and syntax, and like little things. Um, there's the you, you know like the little things programmers argue about all the time, like having the parentheses um, on the same line or next line and things like that. Um, so we catch all the tiny things like that and add that up to an overall comparison, um, check for variable renaming, things like that at a high level. But there's actually a couple tricks um, after compilation that we can scan for and check. Um, and that's something that unfortunately can't get into detail about. And then the third big thing we do is just an overall fingerprinting algorithm um, for similarity. Hmm. How, how, have you caught a lot of people? Uh, unfortunately, we can't look through that data. Um, oh. It's it's pretty strict in, within FERPA law what we can do and what we can't. We have high-level metrics on it, and we do have some information on how well it's catching things on, uh, but that's something we can't really disclose. Interesting. What is FERPA? Uh, so FERPA law is just... Um, I forget exactly what it stands for, but basically it's just a set of laws that protect students' privacy. It basically tells the school that you can't steal like students' grades, and you basically can't show the students' grades to anyone uh, without their um, express permission. And so that's like the biggest part of it. And then it also has some um, rules on how you handle data uh, belonging to a student. How does that regulation affect product development at Mimir? Uh, we have to be careful um, on like who sees what. So just a simple slip up in our roles and permissions. Somebody could see like somebody else's information. Um, so we have to be extremely careful about that. Um, so that, that's just more on the programming side. As, as far as feature development, there's a lot of cool things that we want to build in there, um, like competitions, like competition style projects and things like that. Um, you know, where uh, I don't know a use case exactly um, for grading side, but an instructor could be like, you know, uh, everybody has to program this, the person who has the best runtime, you know, gets bonus grade. Mm. Um, but to do that, we kind of have to show students how well they're doing in comparison to each other. Um, so we can't really do that at all. Um, we could hide that information, but that would just be like turning in any other assignment. So um, that's one thing off the top of my head I know we couldn't do. How do you benchmark how well you're catching uh, plagiarism if you can't actually know, you know, how it's performing in the wild? Um, so we have large anonymized data sets of projects, mm. um, and uh, we have information on that, on which one of those were plagiarized or not. So we run it through that to test, you know, how well it runs. Okay, interesting. And have you benchmarked it against other plagiarism detection software? Um, the only one that I know of that's popular is Moss, which is a Stanford algorithm. Yeah. 
Um, and we haven't run any direct benchmarks on it, but um, based on what we've heard back from instructors, our system is very similar. Our system um, is more uh, preferable over MOS because we actually uh, crawl and index different websites like uh, Stack Overflow and GitHub and make sure students aren't just downloading code and turning that in as well. Can you describe MOS in more detail, like the history and how it works? Um, sure. I'm, uh, from the one of the papers that I've read about it, the core of it is a fingerprinting algorithm. Um, so it just fingerprints all the different files that you upload and compares it to each other and kind of just outputs a giant chunk of data um, to parse through. Um, I, uh, the MOS algorithm itself is closed source, so I don't know exactly the details of how it works. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was written by a Stanford professor, and I believe that professor still works there. What is a fingerprinting algorithm? Uh, I'm not the best at explaining that. <laughs> um, I guess the, the simplest way to think about it is, like, instead of comparing each character to every other character, you kind of, like, take different chunks of mm -hmm. the of uh, the text, and then you kind of characterize that as, like, one sort of data point. Um, and picking, like, how you take those chunks is one of the hardest parts. Um, and then you just compare those different data points that you generate, which represent a you know, bigger chunk than one character, um, with all the other data points um, from fingerprinting other files. Um, so this helps you catch things like, you know, if they just move the functions around, um, like just rename variables and things like that. Is development for MOS still ongoing, or is it pretty frozen in time? As far as I know, um, there hasn't been too much direct development, but I know MOS is also used um, outside of the academic space. So for like uh, court cases where people are, you know, arguing about copying code off each other and things like oh, that. Oh, wow. Do you think about expanding into that space? Um, we had that thought, but it's, it's not right for us to focus on right now. Um, sure. The main reason we made Mimir is to get as many people coding as possible. Um, and that would just be a distraction for us. Right, definitely. So your plagiarism algorithm evolves over time. How did you build this evolutionary algorithm? Um, so we use Amazon Machine Learning. So um, it continuously takes like the some of the information that we can collect from uh, running the plagiarism analysis and just feeds it into like a pipeline where it runs this huge statistical analysis, um, which one of my co-founders wrote. Um, and basically determines like if things are false positives or not. Um, so the kind of the workflow for it is like our algorithm is always the same on determining if it's been plagiarized or not. And then it feeds the information on if it was plagiarized and the code into the machine learning portion, which kind of determines it was, if it was a false positive or if um, this is actually a case of plagiarism because there's a different case where an instructor actually flagged this. Uh, something similar to this as a case of plagiarism, or there is a case where instructors saw this plagiarism report um, and said, no, this isn't plagiarism. Can you describe the machine learning techniques in, in any more detail? Um, like a machine learning as a whole, or...? Yeah, I mean, what, what, were the, what were the tactics you used? Sure, so Amazon's machine learning systems are really nice in that it lets you kind of like without even much experience, it just lets you feed a data set in and start making predictions. Um, so that's kind of what we did initially, and that's what our production systems are running on. Um, but there's different kind of variations on um, 
like calculations that are behind how you make that prediction um, that are better for different cases. And so that's what we've been playing around with the most recently. But like o overall machine learning, you just feed it a giant data set. Um, and based on statistical analysis, it calculates like probability of this happening or that happening based on, you know, a certain number of inputs. For us, the inputs are like different chunks of code. What are the things that Amazon is black boxing there? Do you know any of their algorithms or what exactly they're doing under the hood? Um, I believe you can actually find out all the information you want about um, their machine learning programs and what they're doing behind the scenes. Um, it's not like something that's ever been done before. But um, that's something I haven't read too much into. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it's just interesting. I, I hadn't heard of this process before that you just feed it into this totally black box uh, web service and it spits you back the answers that you're looking for. Um, yeah, so the system, basically you upload a CSV of your data set, you tell it like what columns are inputs, what's your output, like parameters and things like that, um, just by column names. And then after that, you can just start like asking for predictions based on inputs. It, it makes it so easy. Interesting. So what language is your automated grading system written in? Is, is the is the backend portion also written in Ruby? Uh, no, the most of that is written in Python. Python, okay, why did you choose Python? Um, it's just what we felt more, most comfortable with. Um, my my co-founder. So I, uh, role-wise. So I used to. I built version, I guess, zero when we were kind of like testing the idea by myself. Um, and over time, I've just been doing less and less coding. Um, so one of my co-founders leads all the back-end development. I lead. Um, well, my other co-founder leads the front-end development. I kind of like project manage and code here and there. Um, so my co-founder that does the back-end development. He felt really comfortable in Python. Um, and I, I forget exactly what other languages he checked. I know he checked C for sure, um, but he just thought it would be the most flexible for what we wanted to do. Can you describe like end to end what happens when a student or like I mean I guess I'm not clear. Do do all the students submit their projects to the instructor, and then the instructor submits all the projects batched to the system, or do do the students? submit their projects to the grading system and get immediate feedback? Uh, students submit their own projects and get immediate feedback. Okay. So you, you kind of know your grade in advance. Yep. Yeah, so one of the cool things we let instructors do that they couldn't before is allow their students to submit multiple times. Um, so even if um, the instructor uses scripts to help them grade more quickly, uh, they only, students only get to really submit once to say, like, still email or Dropbox the project or, like, upload to Blackboard or something like that. Um, and then once they're done grading, they return to grades. So with our immediate feedback loop, an instructor could, you know, let students submit five, ten times. Um, so a student can submit once and see that they only got a 40%. Um, and there's a lot of help and um, feedback systems built into the platform. So instructors can, like, have pre-made help uh, depending on what parts of the project students are struggling on. Um, and so they can see that they got that 40%. And before, if they just got a 40% on a project, they would just, you know, move on to the next project because there's nothing they can do about it. But now um, they can go back, see what mistakes that they made, uh, fix those mistakes, learn from those, and then submit again for hopefully a better score. How are the computer science teachers responding to this product? Um, they, they're uh, pretty much loving it. Like, the, it saves them so much time in grading. 
Um, and the students are a lot happier too, because like the mainly the multiple submission and feedback loop. Um, and they're really happy as well, because um, before they couldn't really like read their students' code because all they're focused on was grading. Uh, but now they have enough time to just like look through every single submission that students do, because they don't have to actually you know run tests on it. Mm. Um, and leave comments on the code. So that's something else you can do on the system. Um, leave like comments on the code, kind of like GitHub style. Oh, very cool. So that's like uh, a- a- gives the the students an opportunity to learn from a stylistic standpoint. Yep. Cool. So there's a product called WebCat, which is, I think, kind of a competitor to you in a way. It was, yep. So WebCat is an acronym for Web Based Center for Automated Testing. How does Mimir compare to WebCat? Um, so WebCat's limited in that it only does C and Java, um, and it's also not very well updated. And then uh, another big thing is WebCat's self-hosted, whereas we're um, cloud-based, so you don't need to you know run any machines to uh, monitor that or have somebody on like the school staff um, maintain it. Um, but uh, WebCat also lacks in like any big analytics or plagiarism algorithms, so um, we're we're a big step up there. Uh, we're running in over forty schools right now, and I would say close to twenty of them are using WebCat uh, when we approached them, and it was a no-brainer for them to switch. Hmm. Well, so, uh, have all your sales been like no-brainer type of situations, or have 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 there been any, you know, hard sales? Um. Let's see. Most well, we really try to engage in pilot programs before we do a sale. Oh. Um, our our sale, uh, moving money around an educational institution can take a lot of time, and we we care really more about getting this into the hands of instructors. Um, so as soon as an instructor says they're interested, um, we give them access to the platform, um, and they can start using it to teach. And we limit that access to one or two semesters, depending on the school. And during that time, we take care of the rest of the sales process. So it's been really easy to engage um, all these schools because there's basically no barrier to get started. So it sounds like you don't need a sales team. Yeah, we initially we did a ton of um, outbound out, outreach, um, tons of cold calls, tons of cold emails. Um, but right now, um, we stopped sending out any marketing material, making any calls, um, and we get you know five demos a day easily. What's the cost structure? Um, so it really depends on the school. Um, so we, we there's a few schools that we're completely just giving it away for free because um, they're an extremely low income school and they can't afford it. But typically, um, it comes out to about $25 a student. Wow. It's a good business. Um, I, yeah, I remember using Blackboard in college, and I was just like appalled at the product. And I was like, "This is these guys are must be making a killing off of this awful product." Oh yeah. Um. But uh, so I, I'd like to talk some about Y Combinator. Um, this episode is is part of a week of shows about Y Combinator. Um, y Combinator is a startup accelerator that invests in the early stages of tech companies. With that being said. Let's talk about your experience in Y Combinator. So when you originally applied, what was the situation? What did your product do? Um, so when we originally applied, we, we had the auto grader down for like just Java and C, still on the PHP platform. Um, basic plagiarism analysis, nothing like it is now. Um, and also basic analytics. 
Um, so it's basically like, you know, most of the features we have now, but um, just early versions of them. They haven't been fully developed yet, but they're um, in a stage that they could be used in production. And what was the response from the Y Combinator partners and all the, the people at the company when when you uh, presented that product to them? Um, they thought it was pretty interesting. Um, they they're really passionate about um, you know getting more people programming as well because they would of course love to see more engineering talent in um, the valley and also for the rest of their portfolio companies. Um, so something else I should touch on is we have a second side of the platform. Um, for recruiting. So we have all these CS students working on the, um, the Mimir platform, like doing their homework and things like that. Um, so something we're doing this semester is connecting those students directly with um, uh, full-time jobs and internships um, so that it's kind of like a full cycle on the platform. Do those employers have any insight into the grades that the people, I assume the answer is no. Yeah, so they never get to see the grades. There's a few <laughs> insights that we can provide, um, but um, yeah, they never get to see anything based on um, their grades in the course. And do you think there's a future where like students could potentially expose grades that they wanted to? Yep. Um, so yeah, definitely. That's so. If a student wants, they can share their grades with an employer. Oh. Um, and uh, usually, employers ask for official transcripts uh, sent from the university. Um, it's just the thing is, you have to have the students' ex explicit permission to share their grades with like a specific body of people. That's such a killer application, though. Being able to like send this, because I mean, a resume or a list of grades that you've achieved is one thing, but being able to send like a comprehensive background, say, "Hey, look, I'm like every time I submitted a project, it was 100% correct." Mm -hmm. That's a lot more thorough. Yep, and uh, students can opt into letting us provide in, um, employers some information like that, um, but just nothing touching on their grades right now. And something else we've been working on is letting uh, employers kind of run competitions. Um, so like Google could come to us and be like, you know, we, we're looking for candidates that are strong at algorithms, um, so we have this problem that we want them to work on. Um, so we can put that and make that available to all the students on the platform, and they can work on it, and we can feed them the results directly. Have you looked at Piazza? Yep. How, how does Piazza compare to um, to Mimir? Like, does, is there, are there synergies? Do you see people using them in concert, or is it like one or the other? Um, we've seen, we've actually been recommending people use Piazza with our platform. We don't have any forum or discussion uh, piece on the system yet. Right. Um, so they're they're a great tool to use. Yeah, for those listening who don't know what Piazza is, I, I think the best way to explain it is it is it's kind of like a forum, like I don't know, sort of like a Slack, but like less uh, asynchronous um, for people in classes to discuss stuff. Um, and also, employers use it a lot, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, what was the most counterintuitive piece of advice that you got at Y Combinator? Counter to, uh, let's see. Um, I know one one thing that catches a lot of people off guard is um, growth versus revenue, um, and how important you know each piece is. So it it really depends on your exact situation. Um, so for us, at the start of the batch, growth was more important than revenue. 
Um, so basically, like we we were just getting schools on board um, without even discussing um, pricing or anything like that. Um, so that that was interesting, just completely forgetting the fact about any like you know monetizing the product and just getting users. What what was your metric of growth, like your your prime metric? Sure. So it initially started out as the number of schools. And then as we hit closer to um, demo day, it was um, revenue and pilot programs. Okay. How valuable has the Y Combinator networking aspect been? Um, I, would, I would say very valuable. One of the best things you walk away from YC is the network. Um, so you get pretty comfortable with your batchmates to ask for help. There's, there's you know email groups and things like that where you stay in touch with your batchmates, a um, few other systems that are in place. Um, and so like, I, I feel comfortable sending out an email to everyone that was in my batch just asking for help on anything. And if somebody in my batch were to send a, like, you know, a bulk email out, if I was able to help them, I don't think I would hesitate doing so. Did you ever get like any silver bullet emails from people where like, you, you know, you're like, oh, I'm having trouble with this thing and somebody sent you something that just totally inflected your product strategy? Um, I know we, we've gotten some introductions uh, from other people which have been extremely helpful in moving us forward um like a, a few with a, di a few different publishers um and things like that i don't think we're we're at a point where we should um you know publicize all the discussions we have open but um it's definitely been helpful so a lot of the the tribal knowledge from y combinator has become publicly available through paul graham's essays and sam altman's posts and you know just stuff on hacker news so with that in mind, is it worth giving up the equity that you get for being in exchange for being in Y Combinator? I definitely believe so. Um, you know, if, if I'm working on a company after this, I'd definitely apply back to Y Combinator. Oh, wow. Uh, the partners know exactly what they're doing. Um, they, the thing that, I, that really stuck to me in one of the first days is um, they've seen every problem at least a thousand times. Um, so if you come to them with a problem, odds are they already have a solution for it. Um, and you still retain access to the partners after you leave that summer program. Um, so that's always helpful. And then being part of the network gives you direct access to all the other founders. Um, so one, it's, it's, it's a great social group. They're fun people to hang around with and also just get help. Um, they're awesome. So yeah, they, you mentioned they have, you know, they've seen these things before. They often have these solutions. Uh, is there, so, so I, are you implying that like, if you go and discuss something with a Y Combinator partner, you'll oftentimes get information that you would not be able to find if it was publicly, uh, you know, because so much of this has become publicly available. So I, I guess what I'm wondering is like, is it, um, do, do the partners just essentially cut through the weeds of stuff that's publicly available or do they sometimes give types of advice that is totally orthogonal to anything you could read online? Um. I, I'm not familiar with all the material YC has available publicly, so I, I can't say for sure. <laughs> right. um, but I, I feel like it, at the very least, it's a lot faster. So in those three months, uh, we so before we came into Y Combinator, we assigned seven schools over the period of a year and a half. In those three months of being in Y Combinator, just having um, their support, rapid feedback cycles on like what we're doing, what we're trying, we signed close to 40 schools. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
I just talked to the guys from Full Stack Academy, and they said that one of the big assets is the immersive properties of being in Y Combinator. It's like you can, you know, there's on one hand, you know, you've got the certain certainly you've got the institutional knowledge from from essays and posts from Paul Graham, but the act of actually being immersed in it, it's sort of like you know, you learn you learn a language, you go and learn Spanish. You know, if you want to actually learn it, you get immersed in it. You go to Mexico or somewhere else. And that's that's sort of the analogy that I think they gave. Yeah, definitely. And then um, they, there's definitely accountability in there too. Um, so uh, just you know, going to dinners and other events, you're always talking to um, other founders and seeing what they're doing. Um, so they encourage kind of an environment of you know, if somebody sets a goal of doing this, next time you see them, like ask them about the goal, how they're doing, if they've gotten there, um, if there's any way you can help, and things like that. Are there any downsides to Y Combinator? Um, let's see. Can be stressful at times, but I don't think that's specifically Y Combinator. Because um, in those three months, you're trying to grow 10x. So it is a lot of work. So you have to be prepared going in. What about hyper growth? Like, do, do you think that hyper growth is a necessity for a business, or is that kind of something that has just been? codified by Y Combinator and, and other, uh, you know, investors? I don't think it's necessary for sure, as a personal opinion, um, but it's definitely a leg up. So if we did not go through Y Combinator, we would probably just still um, be grinding at it slowly, maybe, you know, doubled our schools by now, but nowhere near as well as we're doing, and we'd definitely not be at a point where we'd be fundraising. So would you advise a company to go for hypergrowth whether or not they have investors? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you don't need an investor to grow. Um, the YC did invest in us, but um, we didn't need really that money to do anything. Um, a lot of what we did was a lot of you know manual tasks, programming, sending out emails, things like that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because because you, you mentioned that the stress was is kind of like a downside, and it seems like you could trade off stress uh, in exchange for, um, or I'm sorry, you could tr you could trade off some of the growth in exchange for less stress. You know, is it really worth trying to hyper grow in exchange for making yourself stressed out? You know, or like ending up like a home joy. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think it's still worth it because it's it's three months of hard work. Yeah, af and after you leave, it's definitely definitely still a lot of work, um, but it it compresses like a year's of a year of growth down to just three months. Um, mm. So it, it gets you, you know, to the the point of an exit or where whatever your goal is for your company a lot faster. Interesting. So I, I'd like to talk some about the future. Um, you know, like I said, we talked to Full Stack Academy just now, and. Um, these these coding boot camps are growing. Um, do you expect to support that market? Um, if there's a way for our platform to support them, either like the way it is or with slight modifications, um, definitely. But our focus is really in um, you know brick and mortar schools and online schools, but you, you know just more conventional degree programs in high schools. Um, that's where we see there's a lot of things lacking behind, and I, I I'm a complete supporter of all these like like full stack academy all these online courses that are like they teach you how to program um you know in you know a, a week or three months or whatever it may be um 
And yeah, I think those are great. But to solve this problem for the long term, my personal belief is that we have to tackle it at the base. Um, so our long-term goal with our platform and collegiate courses is to kind of modify what um, material instructors are teaching. And we're working on partnerships to make it easier for them to teach, you know, more modern technologies, more um, uh, courses that are relevant to students finding a job right now. Um, and then we're also trying to tackle the high school level. That's that's uh, the second big thing that we're working on. Uh, Mimir Platform Gate like basically helped us build the technology we need to do this. I don't know if you um, saw this news um, recently, but the New York uh, part of New York just announced that you know in ten years every single high school there has to start teaching computer science. Oh wow! Um, and in that just subspace, I, I don't remember the exact like you know district, but like that's one point one million uh, high school students. Um, so colleges are already struggling to scale up their CS programs because as a CS graduate, I want to go work in the Valley. I don't necessarily want to, um, they're not the, the Valley for sure, but you know, just at like a high tech company, I don't necessarily want to teach. Um, so high schools will have the same problem trying to, uh, attract that talent to come teach. And there's definitely a lot of passionate, um, you know, computer scientists who, you know, are really passionate about teaching and they're doing a great job. Um, but there's still a huge gap that we're, that's going to be missing. So our goal is to make it as easy as possible for not only all those high schools that have to start teaching CS, but every single high school to start teaching a CS course. Um, it's very easy for them. Is there any trade-off between making a platform that allows for automated grading and uh, a trade-off between that and projects that have more creativity and more uh, flexibility. Yeah, there there definitely is. Um, like I know there's a few courses that we definitely can't support um, where students, you know, kind of like build their own thing throughout the semester. Mm -hmm. And those those lean towards more like higher level courses. Um, and I I definitely agree in that they're what gets students engaged more. But the lower level, um, it's it's very difficult to kind of allow students to do that if you have a hundred person course. Um, it's it's going to be extremely difficult if every student is working on their own project to kind of go around and help every student with their specific problems. Um, so we're trying to get students started, and once they're started, um, if if they're passionate about CS, it's not hard for them to you know stay in that degree. Yeah, and the pro the projects I remember really liking in college were something like the the Netflix prize type of competitions where it's like you've got it is automatable you know you've got a very straightforward target that you're going for but at the same time the breadth that you could explore in the project um, is is enormous so I mean and and it sounds like Mimir could totally allow for those types of projects mm -hmm. yeah definitely it's one of the things that we struggle with is feature creep versus flexibility um, mm. so we're working on balancing that out right can you explain that in more detail? What do you mean? What What are the trade-offs between feature creep and flexibility? Um, so there's tons of different types of projects out there, and instructors always have their own teaching methods. Um, so our platform is kind of built to accommodate as many of those as possible. But a couple times a week, there's always an instructor that needs something super specific to their teaching method. Um, so it's kind of like a way off of do we implement this and add an extra button, or do we, you know, just kind of have them conform to kind of the standard that the platform's set up to. And that's something we don't really like doing because we, we like, you know, giving flexibility. But 
if we add this one button for this instructor, we're going to get another, like, you know, feature request later this week asking for another button to be there. Um, so over slowly over time, like, you know, the right side of your page is just going to have, like, 40 different buttons that do, like, super specific things the instructor wants. Um, so it's identifying, like, the most popular of those um, and only having those while still, you know, finding a way to keep the people who um, whose features weren't accepted happy. Yeah, I certainly remember a lot of extra features I never used in Blackboard. Mm. Um, so I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about um, kind of your background. Like, how did, how did your background lead to you starting Mimir? When, like, when did you start learning computer science, and what was your route to this company? Sure. Um, so I started learning CS in high school. Um, so my, my two co-founders actually went to the same high school as me. Um, so to there, we did like a little consulting business. It started off just family, you know, websites and like playing around with apps. But by our senior year, we're doing like, you know, some decent sized projects, um, uh, for different companies, like across the Midwest. Um, and then once we kind of graduated high school, we kind of left that behind. And we started Mimir our freshman year, um, at Purdue. Uh, so that's we talked about this whole auto grading concept with our instructor in high school a little bit. I just played around with the idea, um, but we never acted on it. But once we kind of came to college, we kind of realized like this problem isn't you know just with our CS class we took. It's it's other places too, and especially at the collegiate level where the classes are like a hundred times bigger. Um, so we we try started developing this, and then there's a mini seed accelerator called the Boiler at Purdue, um, and it's a no-equity seed accelerator um, run by students with a lot of support from local entrepreneurs um, and even a, a few speakers from the Valley through it. And so we advanced through that and managed to win that competition. It gave us about $10,000 of seed capital, um, again, for no-equity. And we kind of grew off that for a while, realized that other schools need this as well, um, and then finally applied to Y Combinator last summer and were fortunate to get in and attend the program. And so your team went to school at Purdue, and you're still based in the Midwest. Why did you choose to stay close to your roots and not move out to Silicon Valley or New York or another tech hub? Um, so one big thing, which it, it isn't the main thing, but is cost of living. Um, so I, I remember staying out in you know San Jose, not even San Francisco, for the three months. Um, and it was, you know, thousands of dollars for just this one-bedroom apartment, um, one-bedroom and loft. And so that's super expensive. Um, I live in a four-bedroom, two-bath apartment in West Lafayette. And my personal rent is like $300. So the entire apartment is like half the cost of what our one-bedroom was out in California. Um, so rent, big thing, and just general cost of living. And we're also really closely tied with Purdue. Um, so they help us a lot. There's a Purdue Research Foundation that was started um, not too long ago that commercializes Purdue technology, but there's a division of it called the Foundry, which um, helps those startups get going. But they've also really engaged in student startups and like um, non-Purdue technology startups, uh, not Purdue licensed technology. So they've been a great help, um, especially helping us with fundraising, um, anything that we could need. Uh, they've been more than accommodating of helping us with. Has it been harder to attract and retain talent in Indiana? 
Uh, definitely not being right next to Purdue's campus. And Indiana's mm-hmm. growing um, as a startup hub. Um, nowhere near close to the valley yet, but um, there's definitely more and more startups every time I go down to Indianapolis. And there's some pretty big uh, movements going on to attract more startups. Like there's a huge tax credit for investors and things like that right now. Um, and around being right around Purdue's campus, um, so we're uh, we we still know a lot of the students really well. So we have a lot of people that work with us are part time uh, work with us part time um, while still attending school. So it's awesome, you know, working with people that we know that are really smart. They go to this uh, Big Ten school, um, you know, one of the best CS schools in the nation, um, and it's awesome you know, just being right next to campus and making it easy for them to get some real-world experience. And um, it's also not as expensive as hiring an engineer in the Valley. Interesting. So um, I'd like to begin to close off. What is an engineering challenge that you're working on at Mimir right now? Let's see. Um, One thing that we are working on, it's more algorithmic, is um, basically... Providing content, uh, like the high level of this is basically like analyzing their code, what they're submitting, figuring out what parts of their code is like erroring out, what part of their code is failing, um, and then presenting content auto- like 100% automatically to help them with those specific pieces. Um, so that's one big uh, system that we're working on right now. Interesting. Can you talk any more about the technical challenges of uh, what you're experiencing with that? Yeah, technical-wise, I think we still we already have the framework laid out. So when we built out a lot of these other um, analytics engines, we kind of made like a template for them. Um, so it's really just the algorithm behind this that powers it. So like, what do we need to look for in a student's code? Um, like, what part of a failure? So like, um, I'm trying to think of something in specific. I, I guess the simplest way we do it right now is that we look at the line that has an error and like identify things on that line, like if statements and things like that, and present content that way. Uh, but usually misses the mark, because um, the, the line that it says there's an error on is not always the, the line that there's an error. And it could be something else that causes error. So it's really just like, I don't know, uh, just identifying those. Um, I wouldn't say it's 100% engineering, more algorithmic. Fascinating. Well, Prahasith, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.